born on a grain farm in South Dakota, Thomas Fry was an unlikely candidate to become a world-renowned futurist and public speaker. But then one day when he was four years old, Fry's parents received a big, mysterious box that would change his life forever. And it ended up being uh, our, our very first uh, black and white Zenith television. And uh, at age four, I just was mesmerized by this box and because I could see people on it, I could see things happening on it. Now, the programming at that time really was pretty uh, abysmal compared to what we have right now, but uh, I was just thoroughly intrigued by it. And so I spent a lot of time watching television from there on out. And I was, I was seeing all of these magical things happening all over the world. Hello, everyone. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Fry's mom put him on a tractor at age 11 to distract him from the television, but he would prove to be, in his own words, a terrible farmer because his mind was always elsewhere. In fact, it was in the future, and that's where it has stayed ever since. I'm so delighted today to welcome Thomas Fry. He's the founder and executive director of the Da Vinci Institute and co-host of the Futurati podcast. Over the past decade, Fry has built an enormous following around the world based on his ability to develop accurate visions of the future and describe the opportunities ahead. Before launching the Da Vinci Institute, Fry spent 15 years at IBM as an engineer and designer, where he received more than 270 awards, more than any other IBM engineer. And if that isn't proof that he's no slacker, Fry also is a past member of the Triple Nine Society, the high IQ society for those over 99.9 percentile. Thomas, welcome to When It Mattered. Hey, thanks for having me on. You know, you are the first guest on the show from the Triple Nine Society, to my knowledge. So, so thank you very much for being the first. It's a little intimidating, but also quite an honor. I actually think that uh, kind of these IQ rankings are real poor metric for uh, determining kind of the value or the intellectual capabilities of a person. But we don't tend to have any better ones to work with. So for some reason, that gives me a, a little added notoriety, even though I don't think it's worth that much. So tell us a little bit about your childhood. I mean, did, did your parents always know that you were like a triple nine society kind of kid or were you, what kind of kid were you? Oh, I was kind of, I was kind of a whack job. See, when I was, when I was four years old, I was sitting on a couch and there's two people came walking in and they put up this box in the corner of the living room. And it ended up being uh, our, our very first uh, black and white Zenith television. And at age four, uh, I, I just was mesmerized by this, this box. And because I could see people on it, I could see things happening on it. Now, the programming at that time really was uh, abysmal compared to what we have right now, but uh, I was just thoroughly intrigued by it. And so I spent a lot of time watching television from there on out. And I was, I was seeing all of these magical things happening all over the world. Now, I, I spent so much time watching television that when I, when I turned 11 years old, my mom just got frustrated with me and took me out to the detractor and uh, with my dad and, and said, uh, put him to work. And uh, so that's, that's what dad did. He put me on a tractor and I, so I spent the rest of my childhood on a John Deere tractor driving around fields. Now, when, when you're driving around in a tractor, 
back in those days, there was really very little entertainment. So you had to use your mind to stay entertained. And, and I tell people that this has enabled me to master the fine art of contemplative thought, just being alone with your own thoughts out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I'm pretty sure I haven't really mastered anything. And I'm not even sure what, uh, if, if there is a real good definition for contemplative thought. But uh, for some reason, though, uh, it's, it's enabled me to think uh, perhaps deeper than the average person on a lot of different topics. And so that I, I, I spent a lot of time uh, kind of lost in my own mind uh, thinking about things. And it, and it sounded like um, at some point you realized all of this thinking you were doing on that tractor made you realize that you did not belong on that tractor. So, so what happened next? Well, see, you don't really grasp that perspective when you're when you're a young person uh i always used to think i was just like everybody else and so i came up with an idea i'm pretty sure somebody else had already thought of it and, uh and then it was wasn't until much later than that i was finally able to grasp well these are rather unique ideas they're it's a little bit different ability than most people have and so i I don't know. The, you you end up uh, kind of not having that perspective on on the world in large crowds. Uh, I was, you know, I was born and raised in a little town in South Dakota, so there wasn't a whole lot of people there, and um, so I didn't have a lot of people to compare myself with. I mean, I was going in a grade school class of, I don't know, maybe seven or eight kids or something like that, and uh, every, everything was was small and. And when we go back to the farm at night, it was just us kids. I have four siblings. We didn't have next door neighbors to go play with or anything like that. So we would have to drive places to meet up with other people. And so how did you end up, um, I guess you eventually left the farm. So how did you end up going from the TV box to the tractor and from the tractor out to the world and then on to IBM? Tell us a quick sort of summary of how that journey happened. I got this feeling that I saw on television all of these great things happening around the world, but they weren't happening here uh, where I was. And I thought, wow, I really want to go there. I really want to be part of all this stuff happening around the world. So uh, after I left the farm, I actually moved down to Colorado to the Denver area. And that was the big city for me. And it was this magical place with all kinds of things that were happening there. And I, I became kind of immersed in in that uh, society and all the stuff happening around that. I mean, it seemed quite amazing when I heard my first traffic report in the morning. I thought, wow, this is something I've never heard before. <laughs> and the sound of traffic, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, just uh, uh, I, I became enamored with the, the sound of the city. Uh, just all of the the things happening all the time. There was never a dull moment. And then you just wound up traveling all over the country. Right, right. Because I really wanted to see all the other parts of the country. So uh, some friends and I, we drove, um, when we left South Dakota, we drove all the way to the tip of Florida, all the way down to Key West. And then we drove all the way up to the top of Maine and then up into Canada. And, and we started just traveling all all the different states. And I hit um, every state in the country other than West Virginia 
in Alaska and Hawaii. That was very kind of rewarding in a lot of different ways because it gave me perspective on the world. Since that time, I've had the opportunity to fly to lots of countries around the world, give talks in these different cultures and uh, meet the translators and meet the, the people of those cities and just kind of understand the, the differences that uh, other people around the world have from the way I was raised. And it's, it, that is such a, uh, a mind-changing exercise because when, once you start understanding that, no, they're not like me, and they've, they've had a totally different upbringing and they have totally different value systems, then you start understanding why it's such a, a crazy world out there and why some of the challenges are just so difficult to get our minds wrapped around. Yeah. So, so then you were, you turned 21, you were on the road and you joined, then you joined IBM at age 21. So how did that come about and what impact did IBM have on your life and career? Yeah. IBM at the time was one of the, the cool companies to work for. It's a big giant company and they had these, these programs to submit ideas. And that's what I did. I, I said, well, I'm determined I'm going to make uh, a name for myself just through my ideas through the company. So I, I started submitting ideas and, and this was their suggestion program. And I, and I submitted, oh, at least 150 different submissions before I hit on any of them. And this was, this seemed like such a, a gruelingly a large number because I, I kept saying to myself, it's an odds game. I can play the odds. Sooner or later, I'm going to hit on some of these ideas. And so. <laughs> what were some of the ideas? Were there a couple of particularly crazy ones you had that you remember? And so this was stuff that you could suggest to them for them to carry out. Is that what it was? Right. Oh, it was things like people were carrying these bags of carbon black. This is in a toner area where they were making toner. And people were carrying 50 pound bags of carbon black up to this blender to dump the bags into it. And the, the steps going up to this blender were different heights. The first one was like eight inches and the second one was like 10 inches. And virtually every person that took a bag up there tripped over it. And this was very dangerous. And so I, I spotted that that problem and, and submitted that idea that they fixed that, they thought that that was a great idea. So there, there's lots of little kind of tweaky things that, oh, places they should have done the wiring different or uh, uh, just lots, lots of little things like that. And so you got noticed and you got hired? Is that what happened? Well, yeah, I mean, I first started off as a temporary at IBM and then I got hired permanently. And then I worked there for 15 years. And I, after a while, then I started starting businesses on the side. In 1984, I got my first personal computer. And that gave me the kind of the toolkit for starting businesses. So the, in 1984, then I went ahead and started something called the Longmont University Center. And we, we started teaching classes on different computer applications, things like Microsoft Word and, and uh, spreadsheet applications, that sort of thing. And we started off doing that. And then eventually we 
we ended up merging with Front Range Community College, and that became the uh, kind of a long-term entity that's still out there, that's still holding classes in Longmont. So you were you were starting businesses, you were working for IBM, you were winning all these awards, more than 270 during your tenure there, but you also started 17 businesses, some nonprofit, some profitable, some maybe not so profitable. And you were kind of carrying all this on at the same time, but at the same time that you were doing that, you were part of IBM and you were saying that it was kind of like an isolated community at the time uh, for security reasons. Talk a little bit about that and how that kind of might have impacted your desire to leave and actually go back into sort of that worldview that you've always hungered for ever since you were four. Yeah, I, IBM kind of got caught up in the, there's a lot of uh, kind of terrorist activity going on. There's these truck bombs where people would drive a truck loaded full of explosives into a building and blow it up. And so then there was all these security measures that were taken to prevent that from happening. And they put up this uh, fence around the entire IBM plant site, which was north of Boulder, Colorado. And it tended to isolate that from the rest of the community. To get in there with it, we had to use badges to badge in through these turnstiles to go into the facility. And so we parked a long ways away. A lot of times it was oh, 10, 15 minutes to, to walk into where your job was and go through all these, these security measures. And that really isolated the plant site from the rest of the community. And so when I finally left IBM 15 years later, then I realized that my entire Rolodex was just filled with IBM people. And I didn't really know anybody else in the community. So then I, I started spending lots of time trying to get to know the other people in the community. Now, in 1997, uh, after starting quite a few different businesses, I decided I wanted to start one that would be a big enough umbrella for all the crazy ideas I wanted to do. And that was the Da Vinci Institute. So in 1997, we, we launched uh, the Da Vinci Institute as a nonprofit. Uh, we started holding events a couple of years later. And uh, we were holding two kind of key monthly events. One was the Night with the Futurist, and the other was the Startup Junkie Underground. And so the Night with the Futurist, we would bring in uh, a person to speak that was a real thought leader on some topic. And the Startup Junkie Underground, we always brought in uh, a startup entrepreneur that was really quite uh, accomplished in uh, starting a business. And so... We, we gained a lot of rather large following as a result of that. That then I naturally leveraged to doing a speaking career, which came a bit later then. I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, about the Da Vinci Institute and, and uh, some of the, the work you've done and since. But I just want to go back to one thing, which is, you know, you won like more than 270 awards and you had like more than 100 different suggestions for the IBM Suggestions Program. And you started 17 different businesses, including, I believe, a couple of uh, Baskin Robbins. Um, and I, I wonder, like, what is it like to be someone who is that large in life, you know, that it's not one idea. Most people can't even get one business idea off the ground. You had 17 or one good idea to suggest to a corporation. You had more than a hundred and, you know, maybe one or two awards, you had 274. What is it like to be that person and what impact does it have on you and the people around you? 
I was always driven. I was always, I tell people that I was tortured by my ideas. A lot of times I'd just wake up in the middle of the night. You just have this great, what I refer to as an, uh, an epiphany, but not just a regular epiphany. This is one of the, the big ones, the real big ideas. You spend all night then taking that idea and rolling it around in your head and you look at it from all kinds of different angles. You piece it together with other ideas and then and then it's when you wake up the next morning and you try to decide this is now a responsibility. I have to either do something with it or I have to let it die or I have to purposely put it on hold or something. So uh, you have an obligation and once you have this major epiphany, which is like a gift coming from the blue, from the great beyond, you have this obligation to do something with it. So it was tortured by these ideas and the ideas were free and easy. And I, I had this dream one night when I was, after I had started the Da Vinci Institute, and this was like, how oh, kind of like a nightmare. And I had this, this dream that suddenly if I, wasn't going to do anything with these ideas that I would stop having them. And that was to me a fate worse than death. It was like getting your arm cut off or, or dying or something. And so uh, then I felt like I had this obligation to do something with it. So then that's when I started my, my speaking career. And I realized that rather than go through um, all the onerous activity of taking an idea and turning it into an actual product and then selling it in the marketplace, which is, is very onerous. It takes huge amounts of time and energy. And I thoroughly respect the people that are doing that. But for me, it was much easier with the presentations I was doing that I could actually take one of these ideas and incorporate it into the presentation in a matter of 15 minutes rather than slaving away over the next 20 years, making it, trying to turn it into a viable product in the marketplace. And so that was my revelation. And that was my solution for my nightmare dream that I had. And uh, th that set me down the, the kind of the path that I'm on today. And it prevented you from launching business number 18, 19, 20. You, you realized <laughs> that you didn't have to do that. <laughs> right. Well, I, I've actually spent... Uh, huge amounts of time working with other startup entrepreneurs. And I mean, we had a co-working facility and uh, kind of working with the people that were trying to get other, launch other businesses. So I could offer them lots of insight and ideas um, to help them along. So I've, I've, I've actually had my fingers in literally hundreds of different startups. And uh, it's, I, I love that environment. I love the kind of the messy front end of launching a business. There's lots of chaos, but just so much opportunity at the same time. Now, the Da Vinci Institute was really, has been really, really good for you, but it also was very, very challenging at a particular point in time when you were trying to launch the, uh, the Future of Money uh, Summit. Tell us about that and what impact that had on you and your ideas and your, your career. Yeah, we, we decided to, we were doing little local events and we decided to do something that would be much bigger which is this future of money summit and we got uh forbes magazine to sponsor it we got uh, the gardner group to sponsor it we started bringing in 
pretty well-known speakers, Bernard Leotard, who was one of the founders of the Euro. We, we brought in Reid Hoffman, who is the founder of LinkedIn. Oh, we had several other uh, very well-known people. And then we proceeded to not uh, turn a profit on it. So we, we kind of lost our, lost our backside on that one. But that was quite the interesting lesson that we had to dig our way out of a hole after that. So not, not everything turns out the way you want it to. But it gave you a glimpse into something really amazing, which is the future of money, because you were able to see, uh, thanks to having those guests on who are talking about the future of money, this evolution of the what I think was the precursor even to cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, the this whole idea of programmable currencies, which became, I guess, the precursor to crypto. What was that like when you started learning more about the, the future of what money might look like and, and then seeing it come to pass? Yeah. So Bernard Leotard, who was the co-founder of the Euro, uh, he wrote a book called The Future of Money. And he, he was actually being asked by the country of Japan to come over and help them design new currencies over there. And these were, at the time, they were being called complementary currencies. They were adding more and more. So he actually was involved in like 220 of these different complementary currencies. Now, these currencies were designed to do things like if you you wanted to pay for your, your aging parents in an elder care facility, or if you had um, a kid who needed help with their daycare, paying for their daycare, uh, you could then go out and do work like mowing somebody's lawn or fixing their car and then get these, get paid in this currency that then could be paid towards those services. And there was different mechanisms for making that happen. Now, there's a lot of experimentation going on at that time, and that really uh, kind of set the stage for uh, Satoshi Nakamoto later when he wrote in 2008, he wrote his grand thesis on Bitcoin and uh, had figured out lots of the things that all of the, the components that needed to be in place for that to work. So, so this experimentation, I think, was was such a valuable precursor to all of that. And and one of the, the the biggest issues was the double spend problem. If you have digital money, how do you prevent somebody from just copying it and and spending it twice? And that's that's where blockchain came in and prevented that from happening. It gave me gave me some unique understandings of the crypto world that most people don't have. Now you were starting to because of the Da Vinci Institute. Now you're becoming a you were becoming a professional speaker. You were on stage. Had you ever imagined that this was sort of the life you would end up having, especially when you were you were younger on that farm? It's a far cry from where you began. Yeah, that was that was the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing. Being a professional speaker, you know, I was scared to death standing up in front of people, and I I finally took a class one time on being a professional speaker. And the people that were teaching the class, they didn't think I had much of a chance uh, in this world. So I dismissed their their line of thinking. But <laughs> and, and they were wrong, clearly. So <laughs> yeah. So I was I was trying different things, uh, and I was being asked to speak here and there. I created a website for uh, being a professional speaker, and I figured out how to work my way up to the top as the top-rated futurist speaker. 
and so there's there's lots of components that you need to be a professional speaker. But one of them is that you need to write uh, a, a number of papers, and uh, now they've turned into blog posts. But at the time, that was before there was such a thing as a blog. But we uh, we started writing these articles, and in 2004, I wrote an article on the future of libraries. Now. I've never worked in a library. I just happen to love libraries. I think they're great. And uh, and I was, I was speculating on all of the things that libraries needed to do to prepare themselves for the future. Now, the one thing I didn't realize at the time is that all the librarians talk to each other. They all talk back and forth. And so when I posted my paper on the future of libraries is over the next two months, virtually every librarian in the world had read my paper and um, and then I started getting calls to come in and speak at the different library conferences. Some of the state library conferences, some just larger libraries would have me come in. I even got a, an invitation to speak at the uh, Library of Congress on the future of libraries in Washington D.C. That's quite an honor. That, yeah, that was that was quite the honor. So so what did you say in that paper that? was so striking to people. What did you imagine the future of libraries to be like that led to every librarian in the world reading your, your paper? Well, at the time, the, remember this is 2004, so the internet was still uh, very new. So for a lot of librarians, I mean, this, this was sacred ground. Going into a library, you couldn't have food or drink in there. You, you had to be very sober. You couldn't make any noise. You know, everybody was uh, tell, telling you to be quiet. And, and I was talking about how uh, we were going to go from this long interface to finding information to a very short interface. So let me explain that a little bit better. Uh, if, as an example, somebody get, hands you a page full of questions and your, your source of information is a large library, and you have to go find answers for all these questions. If you go through and research everything through the reference desk and through the card catalog, that very likely take you 10 hours to find those answers. And then now with search engines and video screens and the internet, that has gotten reduced down to roughly 10 minutes. So um, going from a 10 hour to 10 minute access to information, has radically changed society. Now the next the next evolution of this will be the 10 second interface when somebody can put maybe some sort of a skull cap on, you know, put it on your head and somebody asks you a question and you can think your way to an answer within 10 seconds. So going from 10 hours to 10 minutes to 10 seconds that radically changes society and how, how we do things. And this idea of a 10 second interface is kind of mind blowing at that time. Now the, the next evolution after that will be the 10 millisecond interface. And uh, that, that'll be just mind numbingly different than anything that we can imagine today. I'm sure the librarians, in addition to being incredibly blown away by your idea, were seeing their jobs potentially dissolving at the same time as as things became more and more automated and computerized as well. Yeah, I was I was actually talking about ways of privatizing libraries. I was talking about ways of oh, creating time capsule rooms inside of libraries. 
so that the, the idea is to make uh, the library more relevant to the community that it's in. So every graduating class from school should leave leave some write-up about what, what life was like uh, during their time in high school or in college or and every corporation that's in the city should leave some write-up about what their corporation's all about. And these things should be updated on an ongoing basis. And so this time capsule room is designed to actually track the uh, kind of the history of the community. And, and then you can add photos to it, you can add videos to it, and then that becomes a living resource then for the community. And it also makes the library as a resource much more relevant to the community. Um, so then they'd be much more willing to fund it and, and do other things. So having ideas like that really kind of stimulated the thinking of the, the people that were reading the paper. Interesting. Now, in addition to all of the, the work you're doing through the Da Vinci Institute, you also are co-host of a, a wonderful uh, podcast looking at technology and the future uh, and how the future is changing called Futurati with my dear friend and former colleague, Trent Fowler. And uh, you're exploring all these different uh, aspects of the future, different topics. And uh, my question is, do you have an overarching theory of the future and how it's evolving before we, we attack a couple of individual topics that I'm interested in? Yeah. So I'm always looking for, for what's getting traction. See, I, I read all of these papers that are coming out of research labs and I, I look at it and say, wow, uh, this, this is going to change absolutely everything. And then nothing happens and then nothing happens. So um, this whole idea of affecting change, actually causing something to be different moving forward, that's uh, phenomenally diff difficult to do that. Uh, Steve Jobs talked about that quite a bit. How do you, how do you affect change? And so I'm, I'm looking at what are the big things that are coming down the pike that are uh, kind of where the smart money uh, is going and what's getting real traction and uh, looking at, at all of these things and, and then say, well, what's missing? Or where are the key inflection points in that? So as an example, we all hear lots of stories about autonomous transportation, but one of the critical uh, kind of bifurcation points where we can go either way is, will we own our own cars or will we just use a car when we need it? When we have automated uh, autonomous transportation, we should be able to just summon a car when we need it. I just punch in something on my phone, car shows up, I take off and go to where I'm going to go uh, get out of the car and then somebody else jumps in and goes to where they want to go and so on. Now, right now, most cars are, are not used 96% of the day. Cars are just sitting around. They're sitting around in parking lots and garages and, and just uh, waiting there as a wasted resource 96% of the day. So it would seem so much more efficient if we could just use a car when we needed it, and then just uh, it'd be out of sight, out of mind. But there's, there's a lot of uh, challenges to changing that mindset. So when, when we have that one 
key question of will we still own our own cars or will we just summon a car when we need it? That's a critically important question. Now, if we can summon a car when we need it, then suddenly all of the, uh, the insurance industry, the car insurance industry starts to evaporate and go away. And the, the auto financing industry that the banks do, all of that starts to dry up and go away. As I've been thinking through this, my sense is that people in rural communities will still have to own their own cars. People in the metro area can get by without, without owning a car. And uh, we're going to have lots of hybrid situations in the middle. But uh, over time, this idea of owning your own car, it will become kind of an expensive hobby as it transitions. So this is just one example of, of trying to think through the, the whole changes ahead. And so when I can kind of add different scenarios to each piece of the equation, that becomes really important. So, so I wrote a, wrote a paper on oh, some like 192 things that go away with the autonomous traffic era. <laughs> great, great article. I mean, that's, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here because I just leased a car and I'm looking at it and it is actually literally sitting in my, in my garage 96% of the time. And I am looking at it going, hmm, this is kind of an expensive hobby at the moment, especially in the post-COVID era when so, much, so many of us are working from home. But I want to turn a little bit just to your past and the fact that you grew up on a farm. I'm curious to know what you see as the future of agriculture, the American farm, the American farmer, how do you think that's going to evolve? Yeah, uh, I've been watching very closely you know, this lab-grown meat technology that's been coming out. Uh, now, most people don't think that lab-grown meat affects like grain farms and things like that, but it actually does quite a, quite a bit. Now, the first lab-grown hamburger was, was actually created in 2013, not very long ago, uh, by Mark Post, who's the chief scientist and founder of Mosa Meats in Holland. Now, he was being funded by Sergi Brin at the time, and he came up with the first lab-grown hamburger, and they, had a, uh, a, they recorded a video on uh, the BBC television of two food critics trying this $350,000 hamburger that they'd grown in a laboratory. It's still available on, on YouTube if anybody wants to watch that. At the time, I ran into to Mark Post in 2015, and we spent a couple of days together talking through this, and he was, he was explaining that he thought that we could get the price of hamburger down to about $100 a pound, and he said there would be some limited market for that. And since that time, the price has dropped radically. And, and so it will be actually considerably cheaper than ranch grown meat here in the very near future. And plus you can actually uh, produce a hamburger much faster than you can uh, by raising a cow. And so this is transitioning, this whole industry is transitioning very fast. In Israel, they have a facility right now that's producing 5,000 hamburgers a day. Uh, that's kind of a way of measuring things. That's roughly 1,200 pounds of beef a day, which is quite remarkable. But as, as we start going through this whole process, I start looking at, okay, there's this, uh, the machine that they actually are growing 
the median, this vat, is what's called the cell culture bioreactor. And these cell culture bioreactors can grow far more than just beef. So there's companies springing up that are producing fish and chicken and pork. My thinking is, is that because there's so much competition in those areas that we're going to start seeing lots of exotic meats. Like we might see uh, wombat meat or penguin meat or bumblebee meat, whatever that would look like. But then going further, then you can start thinking, well, anything that can be grown in nature can also be grown in one of these cell culture bioreactors. So we could grow blood in there. We could grow breast milk in there. And then we could, anything that's on our body, we could grow fingernails or eyelashes. We could grow large volumes of them if we wanted to. But as we progress through uh, the different options, we can, we can actually start growing materials like leathers. So we could grow like uh, buffalo leather or beef leather. I'm curious, you know, have you ever talked to your parents? Did you have a chance to talk to your parents about sort of some of your ideas on the future of agriculture and and generally speaking, you know, agriculture, farming, they were farmers, you know, farming is rooted in the now. You're not really, you're thinking about the future, but only in terms of, well, is it gonna rain tomorrow? And when do I need to spray the crops if you're spraying the crops? And when do I need to, you know, harvest the crops? But really it's such an immediate uh, uh, job where you have to be so present and here there is their son who is completely in the future thinking ways uh, in which agriculture is going to change that they probably would never have dreamed of, you know, in their lifetime. Right. I've actually developed some scenarios around this idea of underground farming, about the idea of being able to drill um, like a 12 foot diameter hole into the ground. And, uh, and then on the outside of the wall, you put a a honeycomb casement that you pack with topsoil and then you put a center shaft in this this hole in the ground that has a robotic arm on it and then this robotic arm can then plant uh plant all the plants and it can also water uh and weed the the entire crop and so you could turn you know um, a thousand square feet of of surface into you know, 100,000 square feet of vertical farming. And, and so this um, opens the door. Um, now you can turn that center shaft into an optical shaft if you want, but you can also, there's a lot of work being done on artificial uh, photosynthesis right now. And, and so these plants could actually grow in the dark and it could be then turning turning this piece, the small piece of land into a vertical greenhouse that you could have crops growing you know, 365 days a year. And uh, that radically changes our, our thinking about the farmland and, and it's much more controlled environment and everything. We don't have to worry about hailstorms or, or floods or um, violent rainstorms, that sort of thing these ideas like this, I think have, have great potential. So far, we haven't seen anybody do it quite like that. Yeah, it, it gives me the opportunity to add that to a pre presentation on the future of agriculture, though. And what about your parents? Yeah, my, my parents uh, have passed away, but 
they they used to think I was I was kind of nuts, and so I was. <laughs> we, we would have great discussions about it, and uh, my my dad would uh, I would tell him I was going to give a a talk on the future of agriculture to some different companies, and he says, "Yeah, why don't you come on up here and I'll show you what we actually do with agriculture right now." <laughs> so I yeah I I had uh, I would go onto the farm and we. I would actually drive the equipment. I would go out and learn kind of the latest techniques for farming. But being immersed in the here and now uh, is is actually uh, doesn't give a real good perspective on what's coming down the pike. So I'm always tuned in to, to what the latest and greatest stuff is. And they're, they're doing so much stuff with drones right now. I mean, re replacing big tractors, big equipment with with drones we have the driverless tractors that are on the ground you also have the flying drones that uh, can do other things uh, such as applying uh, herbicides and pesticides on a crop so there's there's lots of different options that are people are exploring at the moment that i find quite fascinating one of the other things you've been putting a lot of thought into um, is quantum computing and the impact that that's going to have on uh, the world and our society at large. Can you talk a little bit about uh, like your your brief vision of where that is going and how that's going to change the world? Yeah, quantum computing is is really such a um, it's it's a difficult topic to get your mind wrapped around because uh, typically in in computing world you have the ones and the zeros and everything's rated on, uh, you do all the programming just in ones and zeros, but in quantum computing, you, you have these relative states. You, you can have relatively more of a one or relatively less of a, more of a zero. And uh, so it kind of works on probabilities. And this changes kind of the nature of programming. It changes the way we, we calculate things. Now, quantum computing, well, theoretically, it's way faster, but it's not way faster in all applications. Uh, so we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, what things is it good at doing? What things is it not good at doing? The, the first application for it will be breaking encryptions, which is going to make things uh, very difficult. But sometime in the not too distant future, this will be kind of like the Y2K problem, but we're all going to have to upgrade to quantum level encryption on our computers. And so that, that'll be coming very soon. We used to joke about the mining operations and cryptocurrencies is that, that once we get to a quantum computer era that we will um, be able to actually mine all of the available cryptocurrencies in one afternoon. That, however, is not actually true because they have built-in limitations on that. But the we're going to start seeing these hybrid uh, half quantum, half traditional computer, and these will try to marry the both the best of both worlds into a single machine that we can accomplish great things with. So, as as an example, we're going to be able to use quantum computing to do drug discovery, uh, to do lots of the heavy analytics in the the banking world, the financial world. One one thing that I uh, that I think we might see is the ability to actually solve the room temperature superconductor so that we can actually take all of the power lines that we have out in nature, uh, out in the, 
the, our fields crisscrossing our countries, and we can reduce it down to a single line that's smaller than our little finger. And we can we can transfer all the power in the world that we need through these little lines that are going to be basically invisible to the general population. So rather than uh, cutting up all of our environments with, with these massive power lines, we're going to have to start disassembling lots of these old systems that we have in place like that and replace them with the new ones. So once once we're able to come up with this room temperature superconductors, that's going to change our lives in lots of interesting ways. Before we wrap up, I want to just touch on one other area of life and work and education, and that is the impact that COVID-19 has had on our society and the future of education and the future of work in particular, and where you see that going as the pandemic kind of settles down into this uh, constant you know, undertone in our lives. How big a change is this going to be in terms of permanence and size and scope? Yeah, great question. I, I actually give quite a few talks on the future of education. That's one of one of the hottest topics right now. We're we're consuming the average person is consuming information over 12 hours every day. We're listening to music, we're watching television, listening to podcasts. We have information flowing into our mind all the time. But we don't get credit for most of this. We only get credit for the things that uh, colleges and the academic world has said that this is valuable to learn. Well, it all is valuable to learn on some level or another. So I think that we're the, the first step is that we're going to start seeing uh, assessment bots that will start uh, hearing what we're hearing and seeing what we're seeing. And then they, they can assign what I refer to as micro credits to each of these things that we're consuming. The way I think about micro credits is 100 micro credits equals one college credit. And so these uh, assessment bots are going to the, the first iteration of them. I think they will look like smart glasses that we put on and then they can see what we're seeing and hear what we're hearing. And then we'll have other different sensors that enable us to actually pass along all the things that we're touching and feeling at the same time. So then we'll, we'll start getting credit for uh, all of this, the, the things that we're learning that are not necessarily approved by academia. As we do that, we're going to actually have to create some sort of an equivalency scale that's outside of traditional academia. So after you've gained enough microcredits, this will be the equivalent of a bachelor's degree or the equivalent of a master's degree or of a PhD. And then I think it goes far beyond a PhD. I think we end up actually on this equivalency scale, we actually go up to maybe two or 300 levels above a PhD. And the top one might be some category five black belt PhD that only three people in the world have actually achieved. So doing that, it gives us um, a far different way of assessing, evaluating the value that people bring to the table. I always like to ask the question, if somebody reads a thousand books, is, is that the equivalent of a college degree? Or if somebody watches a thousand movies, is that the equivalent of a college degree? And the, the right answer for that is, well, it depends on the books and it depends on the movies. Some of them, yes, some of them, no. So 
all of this this stuff starts into moving us into the swirling world of a new new way of evaluating kind of what we have going on in our heads, evaluating the individual as opposed to just looking at some a diploma that's hanging on a wall. That's a very crude way of assessing somebody's value to a business or to a corporation. Yes, I, I have two crazy smart young boys, older boys, 22, 17, and I always ask them, you know, they're largely self-taught. They have the traditional education, but really, you know, they know so much beyond the traditional education. And I ask them, where do you hear this information? Where do you read this? How did you know this? And it's always, mom, it's always around us. You know, it's around us. They're just absorbing this in staggering amounts uh, of knowledge. And it really is fascinating. So I think what you're saying, there's a lot of merit to that of how do you measure that acquired knowledge that is now uh, happening through the through the internet. Um, and in terms of just to wrap up COVID and the future of work, it just seems like there is such a seismic shift in how people uh, work because of COVID-19. And now there's this huge attempt to try to reverse at least some of that to get people back into the offices. Where do you see this going? Well, the average person that stopped going to the office and started working from home has suddenly found an extra 28 days worth of time in their life each year. And they don't want to give that up. I mean, when you get rid of that commute time, which you're not getting paid for, and that you're spending a huge amount of time and energy on gas and car time and all that, people are going to be very resistant to giving that up. So I think most of the work moving forward is going to be some sort of a hybrid uh, arrangement where you have to show up two days a week or three days a week in the office, and the rest of the time you can work from your home. Now, as tools improve... As we start feeling uh, when VR and, and AR and mixed reality get much better and you can actually feel like you're in a conference room sitting around the table with the other people that you're working with and it looks like there's real people there, that's, that's a radically different environment than what we have today, which is all flat screen stuff. But the work environments are going to change into much more interactive, interactive play. And I, I think lots of the, the metaverse world that we, we see coming down the pike is we'll tend to gamify lots of things in life and our work life and our uh, gamified personal life are going to be merging in lots of interesting ways. As we think about ways of actually empowering people that are on the sidelines right now, uh, and they can actually earn money just by incentivizing somebody to make a purchase that they normally wouldn't make uh, through some techniques that they might be using. So uh, I, I think we're in for an exciting time ahead in the, the world of work. Now, we, we've, we've been predicting that lots of jobs are going to go away. The interesting part of it is that we're creating actually more jobs than the ones that are going away. So we, we don't automate jobs out of existence. We actually automate tasks out of existence. Like, like the last uh, 150 years, the only job that's been totally automated out of existence is that of the elevator operator. So if, if you think about somebody that was a meter reader, they would go out and read the water meter, or the electric meter on somebody's house uh, or on their business. 
once we're able to to electronically transmit the information into the office, then they can get that data without actually having to physically travel to that building, then that part of the job goes away. But they did a lot of things beyond just going out and reading the meters. And so the, the meter reader job gets redefined. It gets reworked. And naturally, they can do it with fewer people, but uh, the job itself doesn't completely go away. So we're going to see lots of these uh, kind of these hybrid positions where they certain tasks go away and other ones get added to it. And uh, I don't know, I think we're living in a very exciting time right now as we get to to try new things, experiment with new things. And um, it can be all for the better of humanity or it can be for the worse of humanity. The jury is still out. <laughs> Well, Thomas, looking back on your younger self, that four-year-old glued to the TV set and, and sensing without knowing that it would change your world to that, that young man who left home and traveled all over the country, hitchhiking and camping and, and understanding what it is to be in the present and in the future, that IBM award-winning engineer, serial entrepreneur of 17 different businesses, the Da Vinci Institute, Futurati podcast, uh, hundreds of awards. What would you say to your younger self about the journey that you have been on? Kind of hold on tight. It's going to be a wild journey, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's certain skills I wish I would have prepared myself for earlier. There's certain bold moves ending a business that's failing sooner than than I was willing to do, maybe not taking the, some of the risks that I did, maybe taking other risks. Yeah, it's uh, it, that's a great question. I wish I had a good answer for it. <laughs> so what's a good life lesson, would you say, based on your serial entrepreneurship and having created 17 different businesses over your lifetime? One of the things I tell entrepreneurs is that the, the first question that they need to learn how to answer is a very simple question. Why don't you get a regular job? You're going to get that question asked a thousand times. You're going to have that question asked of you by your parents, by your brothers and sisters, by your grandparents, all your friends around you. And it's just that very simple question. Why don't you get a regular job? And your ability to answer that question first for yourself and then for everybody else is, is a critical piece of becoming kind of the durable entrepreneur that you need to be. I used to get that question from my mom all the time. She said, why don't you just get a regular job? And then at one point I said, ah, maybe I should get a regular job. So then I went out and applied for like a thousand jobs. And then I... I realized that nobody's going to hire me. After I've been an entrepreneur for a while, I become part of the hardcore unemployable. Nobody's going to hire somebody who thinks like an entrepreneur because after two weeks, I'd be telling my boss what to do. They don't want that kind of person working for them. So, <laughs> so anyway, that I think is a, a valuable piece of advice. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for joining me on When It Mattered and for this fascinating conversation. All right. Well, I appreciate it, and I, I wish you a terrific future. Thomas Fry is the founder and executive director of the Da Vinci Institute and co-host of the Futurati podcast, along with my friend and former colleague, Trent Fowler. 
Over the past decade, Fry has built an enormous following around the world based on his uncanny ability to develop accurate visions of the future and describe the opportunities ahead. Before launching the Da Vinci Institute, Fry spent 15 years at IBM as an engineer and designer where he received more than 270 awards more than any other IBM engineer. He also is a past member of the Triple Nine Society, the high IQ society for those over 99.9 percentile. As part of the celebrity speaking circuit, Fry continually pushes the envelope of understanding and creating fascinating images of the world to come. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.